Hello and welcome to the host, Nextin's exclusive podcast show, where we speak with some of the world's leading thinkers on topics that shape the world. Our guest for today is Jeremy Tackett, the co-founder and CEO of Pennyworth. He says he's building a bank for busy people. In his past role, he has been the managing director of consumer lending at Barclays. He's also been the managing director at the U.S. Digital Consumer Bank for Barclays Card. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing very well too. Thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us today. Thank you for <laughs> inviting me to do this. Thank you so Good. much, Jeremy. It's a pleasure speaking to you today. I'll quickly introduce myself. I'm Rasesh, and I run a company called Nextin. And I'm going to be your host for today's podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> Wonderful. So, Jeremy, I'll quickly take you on how we're going to go about this. I'm going to be a silent listener, basically. That's the good part of my job. So today we're going to be discussing about the fintech industry and how we will, of course, focus on how Pennyworth is actually making a difference and, and disrupting the space. But we'd also love to hear about your experience at Barclays, at Barclay Card. You know how things have changed because I think since you you quit Barclay Card to actually start your own company, the world has gone gone through tremendous change. So you know, we'd we'd first like to start with to hear your journey from Barclay Card to having your own own company and how has COVID essentially impacted the fintech or the banking industry in the last couple of years. Yeah, no, thanks very much for inviting me along to this. As you say, I I spent most of my career at Barclays and Bar- Barclay Card and had a slightly different career than most in the in the bank in that I spent a lot of that time around the world building banks. So build a credit card bank for Barclay Card out in Scandinavia and retail commercial banks out in Asia, and most recently in the US. And whilst that was a great way of learning how to expand banking around the world, it was increasingly becoming more, more and more difficult to do it in the way that you really wanted to with small agile teams and new technologies and to do that inside a large organization. And so when I came back from the US in 2019, that felt like the right time to try and go and build something slightly smaller using better methodologies and better better technologies to do so and to escape a little the constraints of a large organization in doing that. So that led us to Pennyworth. The team behind Pennyworth are all people that I've worked together with before to build banks around the world. And so it's an experienced team, albeit now doing it on our own steam. That's an exciting new way to go. Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. So I read Bennyworth is essentially a bank for busy people. Could you talk to us a little bit about that and how you're disrupting the space? And where do you feel there's currently a gap in the banking system that hasn't been addressed by anyone? Yeah, I mean, we take a very uh, simple approach. We're taking the most profitable customers inside the retail bank and giving them tailored finance. And the reason for that is we know that there is a large cohort of customers inside the retail bank who are just not getting very good value for money. They're not really getting their needs addressed. And that's particularly those more complex customers. We call them aspiring affluent customers who have the largest balances, slightly higher income, slightly higher savings, not rich enough to get advice in private banking, but yet because they're slightly larger, the 80-20 rule works. And so they essentially drive most of the revenue. That 20% of customers drive most of the revenue. The gap that they see is that they're not getting significant value from their bank. They're not getting advice and guidance about how to go about you know, making the most out of their money. And so 
Pennyworth is essentially tailoring a banking proposition for them, helping them first and foremost get much better value. And, and that's really one of the key things I think fintech can, can do is really address the value gap. Uh, the second thing that, uh, that Pennyworth is providing, of course, is a much more tailored uh, experience. That's a combination of combining banking and financial planning together, using AI to deliver a great tailored recommendation to the customer about how do they go about achieving their goals in the best way, as well as the sort of effortlessness of do, being able to do it all in a digital environment. And you know, we, we believe that's both a uh, a purely digital experience, but also the ability to speak to a human if, if you have any issues or any concerns about what's going on. This is, a, this is after all, your finances, and you may want to speak to somebody if, it does, you know, if you've got any questions. So that combination of financial planning, really great value products, and guidance and advice, whether that's both our, our algorithmic banking uh, recommendation engine or whether it's a human that you want to speak to in case of need, allows us to sort of deliver made-to-measure banking in that way. And, you know, for us, that's how 21st century banking should look like, right? You know, we're, we think banks are sort of tools, essentially, that should help you achieve your goals. And if they're doing anything other than that, that's not really what a viable option, I think, for today. So your question about what's really changing, it's very clear that we've seen much better user experiences from fintech. But, but I think where fintech really has uh, an opportunity to make a difference, and, and we haven't seen all of this yet, is really addressing those value gaps and advice gaps that, uh, that we see in the marketplace. The reason that we have this situation is that you look at the banks and they are still hugely profitable. I mean, the main banks, most customers have most of their balances there, therefore they generate most of their revenues. And the reason they're super profitable is that they actually generate quite large margins on those balances. They don't pay a lot for the deposits and they, they get a lot from the lending. That historical legacy margin is quite important to them, not just because they want to continue having that profitability, but also they have very high cost bases, right? They have legacy technology platforms, which essentially are sort of 20th century legacies. And they have big distribution, big branch channels with lots of people in them still. Uh, which is actually a, is, is a 19th century uh, uh, legacy. Those two things together mean that they, it's very difficult for them to deliver great value to customers, to give them personalization, et cetera. That's, however, not necessary anymore in delivering banking. Very interesting. So you spoke about, I think one thing that you really emphasized on was value, bringing value to customers. Right. And do you, do you believe that AI could replace the value that a human being is currently bringing in terms of advising their customers? Will it all become digital? Or would you think that, you know, there will still have to be, like you said, there still has to be a little bit of a people element in the banking system. But what we're seeing with most startups today is, is they're going completely digital. Right? So most of the banks that you're seeing, all the fintech startups that you're seeing, they're going 100% digital. It's very difficult to get in touch with customer service, you know, even though they're bots, you know, answering most of your questions. But that human touch is still missing. Do you believe that, that, that that's a gap that fintechs really have to cover up right now? Yeah, I think there's two or three reasons for this. One is that the, most of the neobank models that you're seeing today are dealing with quite basic banking requirements, so payments, 
you know, moving money around, foreign exchange, those sort of things. And those are things that are large scale, low, low, you know, large volume, low, low cost or low, low expense. And so a lot of that can just be automated and done digitally. It doesn't drive a lot of the revenue in the banking model, which is why you'll see these early models essentially are really struggling with how they create money. However, if something goes wrong with that or any of your banking, the, the fact that you can speak to a banker is critical. We've discovered this, that the ability to be able to actually speak to a banker when things go wrong is the real test of you know, trusting in your bank. That said, most of the things that banks do for you, and particularly to these customers that, you know, that are usually using retail banking and can't afford really expensive you know, private bankers to give them advice, most of the stuff isn't really about advice. I mean, at best, it's about guidance, but actually most retail banks don't even give you that. And so that's when decision algorithms can really be helpful because they can look at your circumstances and provide you with very simple, if you will, robo-like uh, recommendations. And you know, a lot of finance is, is, is rules-based. It's quite straightforward. You know, if, you know, you should really be making sure that you've got a liquidity buffer that you're saving for those long-term things and, and like retirement and build, you know, buying a house and other things. Yeah. And so making sure that you're on the right track is something you can actually build using AI very, very simply. And then if you're off track, giving you recommendation nudges as to how you could, what you can do about that. And then if you need to speak to a human or you're not quite happy with the recommendations coming through, that's also something that you should, that should have available. So I think it's partly because of the, the way that the first entrance into near banking, the first wave, if you will, really focused on more trivial payments functions and features, which has meant that actually, you know, they really haven't got into advice proper, but also they, you know, it's a sort of high volume type activity with very low revenues. And partially, I think the reality is that humans are super important, not necessarily to give you advice because they're not, you're not really getting that from your main bank anyway, but actually as a way of ensuring that you always have that sort of safety valve uh, alternative to uh, whatever it is that the, the recommendation is, is, is being provided to you with. Very interesting. Looking at the other side of the spectrum, okay, you've been a part of big banks, you know, you've worked with them, you've built them. So how are they getting impacted by this switch? So are you seeing, very simple question, why aren't they really adopting or adapting to the change driven by AI and bringing that into their current systems? I understand their systems are 19th century, 20th century, but they do have the capabilities of doing it possibly, if I might say, overnight right? And disrupting some of the younger players that are there in the market. Why haven't they adapted to this quick enough? And has COVID actually expedited, you know, the adoption of such technologies by the larger banks? Yeah, I mean, I think COVID overall, to that last point, has changed and accelerated a lot of what was already happening. You know, there, we feel, you know, we felt it anyway, that it's, it's absolutely the right time for this sort of proposition for some while, but COVID's really accelerated that in the sense that, it's increased digital adoption tremendously. It's demonstrated that a more agile, uh, lower cost technology model is better and faster. And you've seen companies be able to respond faster in, in, when they've had those sort of models. And it's also highlighted that you know, people, particularly our target audience, are really looking for better ways to you know, assess their finances and want to get more out of you know, their life, particularly coming out of COVID, but also reassessment of, of their financial needs. And so I think COVID's only accelerated those things. It's, it's, it's made it even more critical to be able to deliver those things. What the main banks, of course, deal with is, is a real legacy, as I call it. They have 
because of those high cost, that cost base and those inherent structure, their job is, has been preservation. And their structure means that they're, they're, they're set up essentially in silos that are, that are there to drive down cost, admittedly, but do it in a very function-by-function function basis. Lower property costs, lower HR costs, lower the cost of you know, financial reporting. And very little of it is focused, nor is the organization organized, to really focus on how do I, how do I deliver better capability to solve really great customer problems? Because they're not organized around the customer, they're organized into these functional silos. And so they, they're structurally prohibited from being able to change fast because of their structures. And that's a real change. So, you know, one is the, the technology difference between how you would build a bank today versus how these banks have historically been built or, or what they've inherited. And the other is how you would organize because of that. And, you know, what's the sort of culture that you create in an organization? If you build a bank today, you're building it around solving customer problems and your teams and your structures are really organized around that problem space, not some technology or finance or other functional discipline they happen to come from. So are you seeing customers actually deflecting away from such traditional banks like the, the millennials? Let's talk about the millennials. So are you seeing millennials actually deflect away from such traditional banks and move on to the new age fintech or the new banks? Or are you seeing people playing it safe, whereas they have, for example, an account with Barclays, but they're also with, you know, some other new bank that's come up in the market? Is it a two horse race or is it, are people taking a decision to just go with the fintechs or with the new banks currently? I think the people that are, that are coming into the market for the first time, and, and that's not millennials, that's pretty much, you know, really people who are starting jobs for the first time. So it's sort of Gen Z and, Gen Z, and, and yeah. similar population, populations or people who are coming to a new market. Let's say people who are traveling into the UK or the US for the first time and are setting up bank accounts. They're definitely looking at how easy it is to set up a bank account with a new player. And, and, and that's where that volume is coming from. Very few people, very few, less than 2% uh, we see in the UK are switching their main banking from an, from an incumbent bank to a new bank. They may, however, set up additional accounts. So like yeah. most of us, they may have a Monzo account or a Starling account or one of the other neobank accounts as a secondary or tertiary account. They may use it for a lot of their spend, but their salary still goes into the main account. So what that means is that most of the original flows of the customer are still sitting with the main bank. And more importantly, more of the financial wallet of the customer, their savings, their mortgages, you know, their borrowing, whether that's short-term or medium-term or long-term, is sitting on the balance sheets of the main banks and generating most of the revenue. And that has yet to really shift, partly because of, as I said, the current account isn't, you know, the, the, the income and expenditure isn't really moving over to these new, new banks. And secondly, because they really haven't started to find ways to take on customers' more important financial needs, more than just payments, right? So how do we help yeah. you fund your life and your, your future, whether that's through savings, loans, or investments? The future wave, the next wave of which Pennyworth is, I think, is a, is a main player is really try to become what we call a sort of fintech with a balance sheet. As I say, we're, we're targeting profitable customers. We're trying to give them a different 21st century banking experience, which most importantly is there to help them reach their goals. Where I think that's all banking really should be for. Banking is very important to the economy, but it essentially should be there to help people achieve their, achieve their financial goals. 
pretty interesting. But do you think it's it's the culture or the fear, you know, with these new new banks that people are still keeping a part of their savings or their salary with the traditional ones, or is it just because of the reasons that you mentioned that hey, you know, the new banks aren't really giving you full service in terms of you know planning my life out. It's more of you know giving me something that I can use today. Uh, and not for my future. Is it because of that? But do you also feel that customers are fearful that, you know, these these banks are new, they've come into the market, you know, in the last four or five years, they haven't really proven their worth, they're just getting funded on a regular basis. But someone like a Barclays or a Santander is more stable, they've proven themselves, they're too big to fail. Do you think that also plays plays a role in their decision making? Yeah, I think it's partly a bit of both. I think partly the fact the business models are not that broad and, and not really trying to solve some of those broader financial questions yet. But I don't think there's a there's a great deal of fear here. I mean, I think that customers are absolutely willing to put their money with authorized banks who are regulated by the Bank of England or you know have the financial assurance, whether that's in the US or the FDIC or the Bank of England in the UK. That certainty around having the bank charter or the bank license, I think, allows customers have confidence in the bank in those banks, even though they're reasonably new and definitely the protection of their deposits up to a certain limit is quite assured. I think it's really a question of of the gap, the value or service gap that they're experiencing. For a current account, so you know paying your salary, paying your paying your your, your bills, the experience gap is great, but the value gap between what you're getting at your incumbent bank and your new bank is so small that it doesn't justify, you know, countering the the normal inertia and banks essentially benefit from this inertia because it keeps the customers there and it's very difficult for the new banks to win a lot of balances that way what you're however seeing though as i highlighted earlier is because of the high cost base and high margins that the traditional banks have when it comes to saving for large purposes or borrowing for large purposes you know whether it's buying a house buying a car saving for your for your future or saving for a rainy day, the value gap between what you're getting in a main bank and what you're getting from a new low cost, but digital experienced bank is much more significant. And so people are much more willing to shop around for those things. So it's partly about what's on offer and there isn't enough of that on offer yet. And partly around this inertia and actually switching just as moving bank, just for your, just to move your current account. It's part, it's hardly worth it. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Jeremy, I think, you know, you shared some extremely interesting insights because you've been part of both the spectrums. So it's lovely to hear that. My last question to you would be, considering a post-COVID world, I know we've not got there as yet. Uh, I'm hoping we get there soon. What do you think the banking sector is going to look like? Where do you think there's going to be massive change? And how does a sector look like in terms of a post-COVID world? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a longer it's a longer term change. We're seeing. I mean, I, I would highlight that incumbent banks, traditional banks, are still hugely profitable, have majority of those balances. And although there's been a lot of disruption in terms of new experience, new technology, uh, it's actually taken a very small fraction of the, of those balances and that re- revenue. And we're still in very early days of the fintech revolution, perhaps uh, articulated that way. What I see moving forward, and it's partly about COVID, which has only accelerated things, as I said, but it's around the next wave of banking models that we should expect to see taking on much more clearly the big financial problems that consumers have, 
solving those problems much more elegantly, much more cheaply, with much more personalization, which will drive increasingly balances, I think, away from the big banks who have stuck to a very traditional model, silo model, an expensive model, into that better, better, more rewarding, personalized model going forward. So I would say banking is still very, very important. It still plays a critical role in terms of you know, providing credit creation in the economy and risk and maturity transformation in the economy. It's incredibly important for, for running the economy, but it can be done much more cheaply. It can be done much more personalized. And as those models come through, you'll see a transition. So incumbent banks will either have to adapt to that, to break in or break out into smaller, more adaptable units, or that business will basically run off the big banks and, and as the new neobanks, the second and third wave of neobanks comes, comes through. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I think, you know, I can't thank you enough for this conversation because it's it's been insightful, not just it's going to be insightful for our listeners, uh, but it's opened my eyes as well. And I think uh, we're excited to see what the future could hold. Even we're based out of India. So you've seen a lot of change in the banking sector, but we still follow, we're still, you know, very traditional in the way our, our banks operate. And I think the way you explained it in terms of service lines and pillars I think that just disruption has to happen in several countries, not just not just the UK. So I think that's absolutely right, Rasesh. Yeah, thank you very much for having thank me. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Please, please stay in touch. That's great. Thanks very Wonderful. much for your time. Enjoy your day. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. Do feel free to browse through our library of podcasts and gain access to insights on a range of industries. If you would like to learn more about our services, please drop us a line on info at nextin.com. That is I-N-F-O at N-E-X-T-Y-N dot com. Ciao.